Last week I was sitting at our couch um, and my wife came over and she wanted me to point out some names in our old directory. Here's, this, this is an old directory. Actually, this was made 10 years ago. And she was updating some of her addresses. And I was just sitting on a couch looking through this. And Jasmine sat down next to me. And as we're going through this, Jasmine kept saying, Dad, who, who are they? Or what happened to that family? They don't go to our church anymore. Or I remember them. Where have they been? And I mean page after page, two, three, four families. Where'd they go? What happened to them? And often I'd have to tell her, you know, sadly, that person passed. Or, really, Jasmine, I can't tell you. <laughs> I know some things I can't tell you. And so I decided to bring this to my office. And I went back to my office. And I started doing just some personal research to kind of go through the families, pray for them a little bit. See, what, remember, what happened, you know? What happened to some people? In this directory alone, I found 40 people that passed away in the last 10 years. Just in this directory alone. And that's not even to mention the funerals that were outside of this directory. And then I went through it and I wrote down a list of some of the reasons. Some, a lot of people moved away. So we live in a relatively transient world. A lot of people just move away. Children grow up. And once children grow up, no reason to go to the youth group anymore, so the family stops going. That happens a number of times. Um, busy lives. I found that there's just uh, some people that had a disagreement with leadership. Specifically, uh, people would say they didn't feel a part of the church. They weren't asked to lead in the area. Or, of course, a music disagreement. People left. Some is doctrinal differences. They have a different belief system. And some left the faith. Other things which are sad, like divorce or even trouble inside families, so one part of the family will go to another church. And even people that had trouble with the law. That's just 10 years. That's just 10 years' time. And um, these same issues aren't just issues we as a church have. Churches across our country deal with this kind of change every day. And it keeps us as a church from being strong, healthy, growing people, actually. When you get irritated quickly and leave quickly, it really isn't how the church has been designed. The church is meant to have iron sharpen iron. You're meant to live in community community changes you. But this is not easy. Specifically, keeping peace at times is like pulling teeth. It hurts. It really hurts. Paul knew this, and uh, he felt this, and in his list of struggles, specifically in the book of 2 Corinthians, he lists his, he's, he, he says it like this, besides everything else, which includes shipwrecks that he went through, illness, whippings, and hunger. One of the top things he puts on the list is he says, I face daily the pressure of my concern for the church. He was concerned about the church because his life was invested in making sure they grew together in unity to glorify God. And then he writes in Romans 12, 16, here's what he says to members of the church. He says, if it is possible... And this is to every member in the church. If it is possible, 
as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. But how? How do you do this? How do we keep the church strong, the body of Christ healthy? How do we keep the peace? How do we get along with a group of people which at times we're nothing like? We have differences in song. We have differences in wall color. There's differences in who likes potlucks and who doesn't. Who likes that casserole salad from the 1950s and who'd rather pizza from Little Caesars. We disagree on who we vote for for president. I mean, sometimes people won't even talk to each other if they disagree with that. Sad, but it's true. We, there's people in our church that like to hunt in the woods while others will play video games in the basement. How do you get along? How do we do this while still keeping the peace and making Jesus central? Well, that's what Paul deals with in the end of 1 Thessalonians. If you can open your little Bible up and stand up, and we're going to read the very last part. And Paul is writing to the people, this church, he loves this church, and his concern is for them to keep peace, to stay together. And so the title of this is Keeping the Peace, starting in uh, chapter 5, verse 12. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And, we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays evil for evil. But always seek to do good to, to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. You may be seated. Before we start, let's pray. And um, I do have one more prayer request. As, as we pray, if you could pray for, there's, uh, we had a death yesterday. Deb Martin's mom died yesterday and as I look at Dave, Dave, I just think of Kathy, because Kathy's our secretary, and she's had a very tough week. And uh, there's a couple students that actually Bill knows very well that have been through some troubles. Well, even in, in the Alex is having a tough time. So let's just bow in prayer and ask God that he would open our eyes to what it means to be a church in community, in this community. That's at peace. Let's pray. Lord, I just want to ask you to pour out your peace. May your peace fill our hearts. May your Holy Spirit open our minds and direct us in what we hear. I just pray, God, that you keep peace 
in families. I pray for Deb Martin as she, father, loves, lost, lost her mom. She loved tremendously. Please, God, fill her with your peace. I pray for Dave and Kathy that they've been through a lot. Fill them with your peace. And I just pray, Father, for other people in our church. I see Don and Nancy. Fill them with your peace. I know Wayne and Mickey need your peace. And I think of some of the students that think of Bill Crane that he touches every day that live in this community. I just pray that you would give him a heart of peace to know how to deal with these people. Lord, we love you. And open our hearts this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, this section, um, it's written in a, a very unique form. If you notice, there's really short passages, real pithy statements, you know. Don't quench the spirit. Pray without ceasing. And so uh, some people wonder, it's called the staccato form. Some people wonder, is Paul just kind of giving a grocery list as he's ending up here of just things to do? And it begins uh, with, we ask you very beginning says we ask you to do this to do this to do this and is he just running down a list but uh, the more you look at it and you take it all together it sure seems like the end of his book the general theme is peace if you look at verse 13 the key phrase he says be at peace among yourselves and then you get to verse 23 may the God of peace himself sanctify you then at the very end he wants them to greet the brothers with a holy kiss an act of peace so this action or this passage really is all about peace that God's peace might rule so today we're going to talk about bringing peace in our lives specifically as we live in the church in three ways first we're going to talk about what it looks like in the community then we're going to talk about what it looks like in our own souls peace in Christ and finally, we're going to talk about where peace comes from. But peace in the community is verses 12 through 15. And Paul begins, when he talks about peace in the community, with talking about leadership. He begins right there about the leaders. If you notice, he says, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you. Those are the leaders. Those are the ones that God has set in charge and over the body to manage it, to keep it healthy. More often than not, the character and quality of who is leading you determines the character and quality of the church. There is nothing more damaging for a church than bad leadership. It destroys churches, actually. There have been many books that have been coming out lately. I'd say in the last 10 years, leadership is a big theme in Christian publishing. But now it's been leaning towards what's called the dark side of leadership, what a narcissist might look like, or how leaders can protect themselves from bad habits so they won't damage people. And I'll tell you, all the, all the books agree on one thing. Godly, humble leadership really matters. It's maybe the most important thing to keep a church healthy and at peace. One church expert writes, because ambition is easily disguised in Christian circles and couched in spiritual language, like language like we need to fulfill the Great Commission and expand the church, the dysfunctions that drive Christian leaders often go undetected and unchallenged until something has gone bad or someone's been damaged. 
This writer keeps saying, at the core of the problem for leaders is personal ambition and the insidious desire to have or possess something that really is not able to be possessed, success. Like there's this drive to be successful, but in the church, what does that even mean? What does it mean to be a successful leader? The world attributes success for a leader, and usually with regards to status and position, people want recognition that you're important. Look at my title. People listen to me. They fawn over me. But Paul doesn't describe leadership like this. Watch how he describes it. There's a little phrase. We ask you, brothers, to respect those, and here it is, who labor among you. They work with you. It brings back to mind in chapter 2, verse 9. Paul earlier said, Remember, brothers, our labor and our toil, we work night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. He writes uh, that my example was to labor alongside, like a mom does with their kids or a dad does with their sons. This is not like most leaders in organizations in our world where they point the finger down at the peons, and they say, do the work, and usually it's the work they don't want to do. This is not what Paul's talking about. A godly leader is a person who is practicing alongside what they are preaching. Leaders who won't get messy with the people have forgotten what Jesus said about himself. Here's what Jesus said about himself. The Son of Man has come not to be served, but to serve. And he gave his life as a ransom for many. And so this whole thing at church is about Jesus and his name. If he is exalted, if he gets the honor, and even we don't as leaders, pastors, people who teach the kids over there or over there in the nursery, if they don't get the honor, but he does, like let's say people leave this church and they go, man, Jesus is great, then we've done our job. So if you ever want to be a leader in the church, and this isn't specifically just for pastors, because Paul doesn't give title, he doesn't give possession or position. He says there needs to be two things that are true of you. Number one, he says, is work hard. Work hard. Study, serve, meet with people, sometimes late. Persevere long, teach the young, the old, the wayward, the faithful. Be ready to take criticism, cry with the hurting, laugh with the rejoicing, watch your life and your doctrine closely, find and build disciples, and most of all, do all of this for the whole of the church, not for your own personal recognition and position. It's sad when people want to serve in a church so people can see them as important. And people will leave churches because they aren't seen as important. The second thing he says, and this is a hard word. Look at this. If you go in here, he says, we ask you brothers to respect those who labor. So that's where hard work comes in. But who also are over you and they admonish you. That's a hard thing that a leader's called to do. What is admonishing? It's warning, correcting, rebuking, training, and gently steering wayward people to bring them back, either into the fold or into right living. 
this part of the job can often hurt those you love. Because often you're saying words they don't like to hear. But that's love. But that's love. But here's the hard part. When you speak words that hurt, people will leave a lot of times and never come back. It's hard to be a leader sometimes. That's why Paul then says to the rest of the church, and that's the point, it comes right after admonish them, so esteem them very highly. So Paul's saying to the rest of the church, mark those who are working hard and esteem them. That means to lift them up, show them honor, show them respect, give them encouragement of what they're doing. Why? Because they're laboring for you, so love them. I just personally, I just want to say thank you to this church. Last month was Pastor's Recognition Month, and we're loved as a staff, Ken. Wouldn't you? I mean, just it's almost overwhelming sometimes. What people will, the cards we get, the letters that are written to us, the gift cards that are given. I see a lot of you, and I thank you. We, we feel loved. The generosity here is sometimes overwhelming. But when you honor those who work hard, the point of what Paul is saying, when you honor those who work hard, when you love the leaders that love you, it makes it a joy to lead. Too often in American churches, I'll be honest with you, church and leadership and people, leadership and people, they are at odds. It's like they, they play a control tug of war. Who's going to control the church? The pastors don't do what some people want, they get mad. The people don't do what the pastor wants, the pastor gets mad. Everyone's mad. We are all about the good news, but everybody's mad. <laughs> what is that? It's crazy. Why has God brought together the church? To serve Christ and glorify the Father. That's the Father, the Father, Dad. That's in heaven. Not to try to be better than other churches in the area. We all serve the same king. So, then he gets to the congregation. So he's saying in verse 13, be at peace with everyone. Be at peace with everyone. How do you do this? Verse 14 says, well, this is the hard part. We have to admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, and be patient with them all. So you could summarize this. In the congregation, hang in there with the hard-to-hang-with people. This is hard. Or you could say it like this. Messy people matter to God and they should matter to you too because you too are messy. And hang in there. So the idol, who are the idol? The idol in this passage are busybodies, kind of irritating people who stick their nose into a lot of different issues and sometimes gossip, maybe lazy when it comes to chipping in. Critical, like to get into other people's business. Paul says, you know how you love them? Warn them. Tell them to quit being such a busybody. They don't take that too well, but you're supposed to do that. Will you quit gossiping? I've, I've heard you rip that person down about 17 times. If you got a problem with them, go to them. Oh, I, couldn't, I can't talk to them. 
But you know what they're like. Stop talking to me about it. So quit fielding garbage. But here you have then the faint-hearted. These are the people who lack faith. They lack faith in both God and, in a sense, the way God feels about them. These are the people who never feel love. They see themselves as left out and forgotten. Eeyores, you know, woe is me. Or these are the people that are fearful. Uh, 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 I don't know. I don't know if we shouldn't go forward. I, uh. This says they need encouragement. Encourage them. Say, it'll be okay. God's in control. I feel one of my biggest jobs up here every Sunday is to tell people that our God is amazing. Trust him. He's good. And then the third group of people are the weak. These are the people, as James says, are caught in sin and need forgiveness. There's a lot of people that get caught in addictions. They have sinful tendencies that get them into trouble. And so instead of judging them, help them. We need to carry each other's burdens. I'll tell you, these people aren't easy to deal with, and I think that's why Paul uses the word patience here at the end of verse 14. I think he recognizes that. This word patience is where we get the word suffer long with, long-suffering. You know, here's, here's the question. Do you suffer long with people, or are you the type of person that says, you know what, once someone wrongs me, that's it. I'm just that kind of person. Like they're kind of proud that if you wrong me, I'm never going to talk to you again. It's your own fault. I give them one or two chances, and you know what? If they mess up again, they cross me, it's over. Ah, no wonder it's hard for churches and families to keep the peace over the long haul. Let me ask it to you like this, and I have it up on the slide. What if, go ahead to the next slide, what if? What if someone in the church insults you or they slander you behind your back? They call you names to your face. Do you quit and go to another church or do you quit going to church altogether? Because a lot of people do. I don't need that. I, I just don't need that. I don't need that. I know people who go to big churches for the sole reason so they can sit in the back and then leave quick. What if, um, what if someone ignores you and disrespects you and does not invite you to the party and doesn't ask you to teach a class and excludes you from a dinner where the cool people go? Or a person you thought was your friend goes to someone else for advice. What do you do? Pout and pack up your toys and leave and find another church. What if you come to church and someone's sitting in your seat? I'd throw them out. I'd hit them over the head with that seat and throw them out. Paul says on each of these scenarios, look at what he says. And this is the practical thing. Don't repay anyone evil for evil. Don't pay back. You know what they said to me? No payback. No payback. 
They ignored me. I didn't get the position I wanted. No payback. No payback. That is so hard. Our job is to seek to do good to one another and to everyone. This is not, payback is not a way to achieve peace. It's a way to divide. And we're all part of a, of a family. I've served this church for 23 years. I served in different ministries seven years before that. So that's 30 years. And I think I've discovered the single most obvious mark of authentic Christianity in community, in families, in groups. And it's found in 1 Peter. And I want you to take a look at this. I would actually encourage you to memorize this, highlight it, underline it. This is the single most telling thing even in marriages if Christ lives in you. First Peter chapter 2. I didn't have it up there, that's okay. First Peter 2, 19 to 25. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, when you're thinking of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. That means you're being insulted, you're being treated wrongly, even when you don't deserve it. For what credit is it when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you've been called. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, that means insulted, mocked, he did not revile in return. He didn't retaliate. When he suffered, he didn't threaten. So when he's getting his nails, hands pounded by nails, he says, just you wait. He didn't say that. You know what he said? Father, will you forgive them? They don't know what they're doing. You know what he did? He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. That means he shut his mouth and he said, God, you're going to have to help me. Help them see what they're doing to me. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you've been healed for you were straying like sheep but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. So here's the three marks of I think a person in community where Christ is alive they don't retaliate, they trust God to handle their problems, and they show mercy when, someone, when someone's mean to them. They show mercy, and you know what that does when you show mercy to somebody? It gives them a chance to come back and apologize. The more defensive you get, the more defensive they get, then the more defensive you get, and then the more split it becomes. That's peace and community. Next is he's going to talk about peace in Christ, 16 to 22. This is where he gives that staccato form. 16. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in you in Christ Jesus. So this is what God wants you to be like when Christ Jesus is in you. I think, you know, one writer believes that these verses are intended for the church as a whole, but honestly, they also are dealt with each individual specifically. So this is, in a sense, how do you have peace in yourself? I remember when I was a kid, and I went to a, the first church I went to, 
We'd always sing this song. And I think it's right. This is what he's saying. It says, let there be peace on earth. And you sing it, and let it begin with me. Dave, you remember that song? I see you smiling. Did you sing it as nice as I did? Yeah? Did you notice a little bit of vibrato in there? But so, so let there be peace on earth. Well, where should it begin? In me. How does this happen? And I think in this passage, there's, I'm going to put them together in two phrases. The first is this, and it's not the power of positive thinking, but it's persevere in positivity. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. And if you notice, I want you to notice something, and specifically in the Greek, what he's really focusing on isn't necessarily things you should do, but the, consistent, the consistency of those things you should do. Always, in all things, in all without ceasing, keep doing this. It's meant to be something you persevere in, and it's positive. Have joy. Have joy. Always. Pray, that means trust God in all circumstances. And then give thanks, no matter what happens. And, you, and it's, it's always without ceasing in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Why? Because that's hard. I, I like to be grumpy. Jared, some, believe it or not, Jared sometimes calls himself the church curmudgeon, but I, I don't believe it. See how happy he was in there? I don't believe it. Why should we be happy? Because we're evangelicals. Evangelicals are people of the good news, not people of the miserable news, the discomforting, fearful, hopeless news. We have good news. God's on our side, the living God. The one who will move the heavens for itty bitty me. That's amazing to me. I like what Gordon Fee says about this. He's a, he's a commentator. This is not a sugar-coated call for putting on a happy face in the midst of dif difficulties. Jazz hands. That's not what he's talking about. Here's a church that is undergoing severe hardship because of its faith in Christ. God's will for such a community, both as individuals and as they gather for worship, is that as a matter of first importance, they continue to exalt Christ by rejoicing. With him is the focus. Rejoicing takes place because our message is clear. Here's our message, Romans 5.1. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God. That's amazing. We are no longer his enemies. We are his sons and daughters. We are the sons and daughters of the one who sits on the throne. Have you ever, like, have you ever, like, I, I'm trying to just, trying to think through this as I'm praying through this. Why should I rejoice? I think because it has to begin where we started. Have you ever felt the terror of condemnation? I think this is often why Jesus said, he who has been forgiven much loves much. I would say it like this. He who has been forgiven much understands real peace. Have you ever understood the fear 
the terror of condemnation, and then you're set free, all you can do is rejoice. I, I was trying to think of some examples of my life when I had a similar feeling. I remember the first time I really understood salvation. It was overwhelming. But I, but I was trying to think of what are some similar feelings. Bill, one of my, one of my favorite feelings when I, I first started two-day practices for football, and back in, this is back in the 80s when they wouldn't give you water when you're thirsty, you know. It's two-a-day. We'd get there in the morning and in the afternoon, and it'd be two weeks of literally like you are, you're, you're, you're being whipped and beaten by these coaches who think they're General George Patton, you know, swearing at you. And then if you can make it through that two weeks, they have a pool party. And the pool party is a sign that everybody's now in. You made the team. And I remember jumping in the pool after the last two-day practice. And you jump, you come out of the pool, and they serve all the pizza you can eat, ice cream. And it was like, yes, I'm out of hell. It's fantastic! That was a great feeling. The second feeling I had is when Mike Carew took me to Wyoming to go hiking for 10 days up the mountains. And you come down the mountain and you get this Gatorade and this cold, oh, and you're on the van. Oh, I'm on the van. I hated this van right on the way there, but now it's like heaven. It's great. That's, we have salvation. Why are we mad at each other? That's the point. The second thing I would say is this, is, and this is, this is going to be kind of an odd statement, but I believe the second part is, go ahead and hit it, is he's, he's giving us prophetic preventatives. If you look, look at verse 19. If you notice, it's in paragraph form. That means in this passage, it's clumped together as if these things relate. What's interesting, most of the times you read this, in the King James, they would have almost like every verse is its own paragraph. So you'd take the verse and try to make sense out of the verse in itself instead of trying to relate it. So like, for instance, it begins here with, don't quench the spirit. And so since this is written in staccato form, you'd think, what does that mean to don't quench the spirit? Oh, I know, when God tells you to do something and you don't do it, you're quenching the spirit, because that's what it said in other places. Makes sense. So that's how it's usually preached. Don't despise prophecies. And people will say, well, now prophecies are the foretelling of the word. Means love of the Bible. Okay, that makes sense. Test everything. Hold fast to what is good. That means in whatever you do, you know, make sure you do good and not bad. All right, that makes sense. Let's do good. And then abstain from every form of evil. And usually that would be, huh, what's evil? Oh, um, not wearing dresses to church, wearing tattoos, don't go to dances, movie theaters, avoid alcohol and rock and roll. And even the Amish use this for not riding in cars because it has a combustible engine which is right, you know, has fire on the Sabbath. So that's evil. So you, so you kind of figure it out like that. But in truth, if you take this in paragraph form, it's talking about something very specific. So here's what I wrote. As you study commentaries... In reputable Greek word scholars, it seems these four verses, 19 to 22, are all concerning the same topic, and it's of prophecies at that time. At that time, they did not have any of the books of the Bible of the New Testament. This was one of the very first books written, Thessalonians. And they would lean on prophetic utterances. They would have prophets come to town to say, hey, 
this is going to happen. Or apostles would have a new word from God that Paul would pen. You know, so scripture was still, in a sense, being written. And God was really speaking to the apostles and to many people in the church through visions, signs, wonders. And so when Paul says, do not quench the Spirit, he's probably talking about being open to the movement of the Holy Spirit through the apostles and the other people with the Word of God. You can read this all through Corinthians 12 through 14. Paul talks about prophecies. And prophecies can be both foretelling and foretelling. Foretelling is I'm telling you the truth right now. Foretelling is I'm predicting what's going to happen in the future. And so Corinthians talks clearly about this. And he calls them manifestations of the Spirit. So Paul in some sense is saying be open to them. If God wants to speak into the congregation, let him. Don't put out the Spirit's fire. But there was a problem. These utterances were coming through human vessels, so they needed to be tested. Not every word could be trusted. And Paul seems to be referencing back to Deuteronomy 18 when he says, you know how you can tell a prophet with what he says comes true? If it doesn't come true, get rid of the prophet. Actually, it said kill him. But Paul, what you'll see is going to tell him to just get rid of him. So the way you can tell a true prophet sent from God and one that's not is whether his words come true and his attitude. Does he allow people to be over him, specifically the leaders? In Corinth, Paul tells the church in 12.10, be discerning. In 2 Thessalonians, it seems like they had false teachers come in and they said, you need to be careful because they're shaking the faith with these new prophecies, so stick to what we taught you. 1429 of Corinthians, it says the leaders weighed carefully what was said. And so, in other words, they are to give the teaching of the apostles and the doctrine precedent. And if anything goes against that, not to listen to them. And then after testing process went through, they were to hold on to what was good. What is that? What's building up the body? What's edifying and not dividing? And in this case, it ends by saying abstain from every form of evil. And the way the Greek is written, it's not, it's not like evil actions. It's almost evil person, like false prophet. And one writer says the way you can tell if a prophet was false was his teaching was either for greed to get money off the people, sensual or causing people to do immorality, sexual immorality, or three, the teaching was divisive, causing people to take sides. So when it says abstain from every form of evil, it could be like, don't listen to that teaching. So both, I think, are correct. Both of these ways are correct. But I, my question then, if we're going to go, if this is talking about prophecies, how do we apply this today? I'd say simple. Number one, don't despise urging and promptings of God through the Spirit. Like God will urge and prompt you. But we must let Scripture override the impression someone may have and allow leaders to speak into people's lives. Sometimes people come to my office and say, hey, I had a word for God, from God for you. And it's something I just disagreed with. And I'd say, I disagree with that. Well, God told me. This is what the church needs to do. Now, when you say that, it's like playing a trump card. How do you disagree with that? If God told you, it must be true. What if God told me it's not true? Hmm. It's almost like, you know, it's like uh, that 
show Princess Pride, we're at the impasse. So what happens? This is saying, let the leaders, let the leaders teach. Does God still speak like this? Does he give what are called God-breathed revelation? We believe the full revelation that we're accountable to is in the canon. It's written. It's in this book. But he does speak in conviction, impressions, and promptings. And when people are prompted, don't despise it. Listen to them. They might be speaking to you. Don't be scared of it. Don't put out the Spirit's fire. But our objective is to keep the peace. Hold on to what is good and get rid of what is bad. So this is peace in community, peace in self, and now the gift of peace. Ultimately, how hard we try to keep peace, it's not produced by us. God gives it. He sends it. Like a gift from above, we receive it. Look at verse 23 and 24. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you, make, make you holy completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus. Some people use this verse to argue we're trichotomists. I'm a trichotomist. I believe we have three parts to us, body, soul, and spirit. And all he's saying is that may God bring peace to every part of your soul, every part of you. God is the one who works on us, every part of us, to bring us in line with the Lord Jesus Christ, the King. So he would rule us. The idea goes, harkens back to Psalm 11. What should we do when the... When the foundations are being destroyed and the world's falling apart, don't worry, God's still on the throne. His name is the Lord Jesus Christ, Jehovah. And he called you into his kingdom of peace, and he will do it. That's how it ends. He's going to bring the peace. He will do it. Jesus himself said it like this. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. It's not a peace we produce. It's something we trust in and wait for. So when you want to run from the church because times are hard or you're in an argument or people get mad at you and they tick you off or you demand answers from leadership or you're frustrated with the leadership because they're not getting things done fast enough or you're in an argument and things still aren't changing, let the king deal with it. Give it to him. Here's a strange question. I, I want to finish with this odd question. Do you think when we get to heaven, God is going to have a ranking of churches like we rank football teams or like we rank political candidates or countries that it's the best to live in? Are we going to rank which were the best churches? Are they going to be ranked? Are we better than North Casnovia because we have a little bit more kids going to our youth group? Are we? Are we better than Bailey because, well, no, no, Bailey's better. They have an upward basketball league. If we're going to be a good church, we need to have one, Pastor. Man, yeah, you're right. We're failing. Do the churches in Rockford have a higher standing than us because they have more pastors on staff? Does some churches really know how to worship God because they crank up the music and have fog lights? 
is, is God going to compare missionary lists? You may say, and of course not, but you think like that. We all think like that. We all compare. We all compete. We all wonder. We're very loyal to our organization. I remember a year ago, I, was, um, I had Sunday off. I think I was in Cleveland. I, I don't know where I was. I was driving down the street on a Sunday morning. I wasn't preaching. And I realized there's more people in the parking lot of Buffalo Wild Wings and restaurants and going to sports events and theaters, movie theaters, than I think are going to Sunday morning at the church. And one of the reasons, I think, is because it's easy to go to those places. It requires nothing on your part. The other reason is because you... When you go to church, you have to love messy people, weird leaders. And man, I'm tired of putting up with it. But God has designed this thing called his bride, not me, not Ken, not Jared. We haven't designed this. But God did, and someday it's going to all make sense, and we're all going to worship at the throne of God together in heaven. It's going to be incredible. In the meantime, we are to love one another. And to show we are not at all odds, Paul gives us one last exhortation, my favorite of the whole book. Are you re- Kelly, you ready? All right, Kelly's ready, all right. Verse 26, greet all the brothers. <laughs> Kelly, you ready? <laughs> With a whole, uh-oh, Jerry's looking at me like, yep, I'm out of this church. With a holy kiss. What did that mean? There's a lot of, there's a lot of uh, writings on this. Some people would say the men go on one side and the women go on the other and kiss each other on the double cheek. My, um, my wife, Michelle, when she joined our family, I have a brother named Jim, and a brother-in-law Jim, and he was Polish, and he'd kiss you right on the lips. First time she met him, she got a kiss right on the lips. What in the world family is this? And then he'd kiss me on the lips. You know, what is going on? Is that what it's talking about? Yes. So stand up. (laughs) What this is, it's some gesture. This is some kind of gesture that said, hey, I love you. You're my brother. You're my sister in Christ. And we'll make it. So as you leave, if there's anybody you have odds with, go shake their hands. Don't tell them. Just shake. But as you leave, just shake hands with people and then just say, I love you. Because we are to be a people of peace. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord. And where I was from said, thanks be to God. So let's say it. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord. So stand and shake some hands.